This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly. I'm excited about today's episode. My guest is Dr. Eric Gibson. He's an author, archaeologist, and anthropologist who holds a PhD in anthropology from Harvard University. He has special and extensive experience with the Maya culture and lived for 10 years among various aboriginal groups, including the Maya. Eric also directed archaeological research projects in Central America, France, Polynesia, and North America. And last but not least, he's the author of an archaeological mystery novel entitled Nine Lords of the Night, which is set against the background of the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas, Mexico in 1993. So first of all, Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, learning about eco-living and green living from ancient civilizations. And specifically, I think we're going to end up talking uh, uh, quite a bit about the Maya uh, culture. So why don't we just start right there, Eric? You know, tell us about, I know that you have a lot of uh, special knowledge about that culture, but also several others. Maybe you could just tell us some, first some basic information about the Maya culture, sort of what makes it special and significant in history. And, and I'm also curious a little bit about the story of how you came to study it. Oh, boy. Well, that's going to that's take that's, a couple That's minutes. a mouthful. <laughs> um, well, the Maya, you know, were one of the high civilizations of the New World, or of the entire world, for that matter, uh, at their zenith, uh, the peak of the classic Maya period, 900 A.D., uh, they covered all of what is now Guatemala, um, Chiapas, Belize, a good portion of Honduras, and other portions of so- southern and western Mexico. And um, what's a little-known fact, I think, by most people is that they were able to sustain a population that conservatively is estimated to be three times larger than what the, the number of people that live there now. And the way they did that was through intensive agricultural, process, uh, agricultural projects like raised field agriculture, terracing, uh, irrigation. They had uh, game parks. They were very much in tune with their environment. Interesting. Now, I know you mentioned uh, in some of your writings that you know they, they flourished for many years in, in harsh environments. And in your book, you discuss their, their culture and the ecology. Can you share some of that information specifically with our listeners? Yes, I mean, it wasn't until about 20 years ago when uh, we started using uh, side-scanning radar to penetrate the, tr- the tropical rainforest that um, an ar- archaeologist at the University of Texas, uh, Richard Adams, and a few other guys looked at the, the satellite imagery and they noticed networks of canals and um, grids and roads and uh, just structures and infrastructure that we had no idea existed until uh, that technology was brought to bear on the tropical lowlands. And the Maya were able to uh, mobilize and organize their people to um, basically take 
fallow land-like swamps, like the mangrove swamps that you see down there now, um, and and raise up these fields with with muck and uh, recycled food, and you know, uh, basically they knew how to do compost and in, in a very large and you know grand scale, and that's how they supported such a large population. Um, you know, that always leads to the question: then what happened? Well, you know, why did uh, why did that system break down? Of course, we don't know all the answers, but it does indeed look like a warfare um, and a period of droughts. Uh, once the population got to such a large extent that when when you had droughts in one region, it affected uh, the people's ability, you know, of course, to feed themselves, and so they would go up against uh, cultures they weren't so closely connected to by kinship and lineages. And that would be, uh, you know, a bad thing because then the people that who are actually supposed to be growing the crops are now fighting people, right? And right. It's, it has a domino effect. Huh, interesting. And that's, and that's why it took probably two or three centuries for the classic period to turn into the post-classic period and be a period of great uh, brutality and warfare. So, so that's pretty conclusive. I mean, they consider that really that it was the warfare and sort of the uh, the the the, the appropriation of those resources, the, the agricultural resources, to warfare. Is that is that pretty much considered among scholars the the accepted reason for the downfall of the Mayas? Well, you know, scholars never accept everything, <laughs> but, and certainly not unilaterally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, no, but I would say that you know, in the last twenty years. There's kind of a coalescing uh, around the idea that, you know, gradually over time, um, they indeed did compete for resources, and, and, and they took, you know, the guys who were basically farmers, and they turned them into soldiers. And well, who's, who's doing the farming, right? I mean, the thing about the, the raised field uh, agriculture that I was talking about that you see all over Belize and on into uh, the Peitan region of Guatemala is that requires a fair amount of maintenance. And if you take these people out of the maintenance loop, pretty soon the jungle reclaims it. And then, you know, it's, a, it's an exacerbating situation that keeps getting worse. And the population, you know, continues to have, you know, have to do different things to get food. And uh, you, you start to see a movement towards the coastlines. So they start to be more maritime for, focused in the late, excuse me, in the late classic period. And you see, uh, areas being abandoned uh, where there's a lot of warfare. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting. I mean, you know, archaeology and, uh, and anthropology have sort of become sexy uh, in the media. And it's kind of funny. I mean, Indiana Jones, I think, you know, Carlos Castaneda sort of did this in the 70s uh, for anthropology mm -hmm. and, and ethnobotany. And then we've seen, you know, and certainly uh, with the Indiana Jones films that, that came out uh, originally uh, back in, I guess that was the, the late 70s and throughout the 80s, and then have now, of course, resurged and with the, the latest installment. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of become sexy. And it, I think that also uh, a lot of people now are, uh, it's interesting to see how we're studying ancient civilizations, and there have been books such as Are We Rome uh, that are looking at sort of the, um, you know, the, uh, I guess the epitaph, as it were, for past civilizations to say, such as Roman civilization. I don't know if there's a, such a treatise on the Maya civilization, but just to look and see what went, what went wrong uh, in terms of society, culturally, you know, militarily. Uh, or even ecologically, as may be the case with some of these cultures, to see uh, you know what we can learn from them before it's too late on our end. Um, so I want to talk to you more about that. But uh, so uh, we will we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break, and I will be back with Dr. Eric Gibson 
and we'll be back on Green Talk Radio in just a few brief moments. Thanks, everybody. Listen to Living Green, effortless ecology for everyday people, a weekly online audio program featuring champions of sustainable living at personallifemedia.com. Okay, and we are back on Green Talk Radio, and we are talking on learning about eco-living and green living from Maya and other civilizations. And my guest is Dr. Eric Gibson. He's an author, archaeologist, and anthropologist with a PhD from Harvard University. And he is also the author of Nine Lords of the Night, which you can find online at www.ninelords.com. And Eric, we were talking before the break just about some of the basics of uh, Mayan history, and is it Maya history or Mayan? Do you put an N on that? I always wonder about that. Oh, you know, you can say it either, either way. way. Okay. Uh, well, the way I learned it at Harvard, so it must be right. Ah, okay. I, <laughs> I couldn't find corroborating references online, so I was getting confused <laughs> on that. The wiki entry also used Maya, always used Yeah, either way is acceptable, okay. but, you know, most archaeologists would say Maya because it can be used as singular or plural. Okay. So uh, we were talking about the, some of the – Maya history and um, the, the culture and the breakdown of that culture and some of the things that uh, scholars espouse ha- happened there. And I wanted to just find out a little bit about, you know, I want to ask you a question related to anthropology and archaeology, but actually before we even go any farther there, I'd like to break those terms down. If you wouldn't mind helping for our listening audience, g- give us a quick breakdown of the difference between anthropology and archaeology. Sure. Uh, anthropology is the study of, of you know, human behavior and humans in all places and all times. And uh, it's just a very broad field. And uh, archaeology is a study of, uh, you know, the past, the material culture of these humans and trying to reconstruct what their ways of life were. Um, and then archaeology itself can be broken down into several different subfields, like nautical archaeology, those are the guys that do the shipwrecks, um, historical archaeology, so they deal with, uh, you know, the historical period with European contact, you know, in the New World, which is a very fascinating period. And um, then there's prehistorians, like that's, which is what I am, is uh, the period before Europe, European contact. And, um, you know, there's also classical archaeology, which is Greek and Roman, and biblical archaeology. Uh, you know, which is uh, archaeology of the Bible, just that the Israelis and uh, many different universities in the United States, uh, you know, they have a lot of good departments that do that. All right. Well, okay, thanks. I appreciate you doing that. Um, so, so being, as you are, both an anthropologist and archaeologist, and, and having had all this experience uh, that you've had in cultures like the Maya culture, I was just curious, and this is one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you today, is if you could maybe share some of the things that you've learned about of eco-living and environmentally friendly living and simple living from these cultures. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I would say that some of the happiest people I've met or lived among are people who have the least amount of material uh, things and stuff. Um, You know, if I was to be drop somewhere in the in the tropical uh, rainforest with only uh you know one t- one or two tools the first tool would be a machete and the other tool would be a hammer and with those two things you can basically make it down there and i've seen guys do that really just carrying around <laughs> uh, a machete and a hammer <laughs> oh yeah it's amazing what a maya indian you know one of the modern maya that i've worked with in, in belize for example can do with a machete i mean they open up uh, beer bottles with them. They, uh, 
they can trim a coconut pretty quickly. Uh, you know, they can fashion tools. You know, they're, they're just, they're amazing. They can build a hut, you know, from the ground up. It's a, you know, talk about, you know, what's a necessary tool. You know, what, what one thing do you need? It's got to be the machete down there. And, uh, and there's, like I said, they, they, re- they seem to recycle everything. Um, you just don't see a whole lot of big trash piles around their, their villages. And uh, that, that's something I came to admire uh, just by living among them, was um, how f- you know, just little they really wanted. You know, they, they just wanted to, to, to have food and shelter and uh, be able to you know, observe their religious practices. And uh, any day where nothing bad happened was a good day. I mean, they were just, you know, they're just very happy people, very well adapted to their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you attribute that to sort of the lack of stuff and, and, yeah. and what, and distractions and things that they're living yeah, a they, more simple life? They're not life. getting constantly bombarded with commercials that tell them to, that, that they're in any way diminished if they don't have a BMW 850, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. Um, the, the culture they, of consumerism. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's that old saying, they, they have what they want, and they want what they have. Um, I, they're just, hope, they're, they're in balance. No, that doesn't mean they wouldn't turn down a nice 4x4 four four if you gave it to them. Right, <laughs> right. But, but there's a difference between that and hinging your happiness on having it. Yes, and they do not. They do not hinge their happiness on things. Their, their happiness is hinged on family and friends and social networks. And I know that, that Buddhists say... You know, desire is the root of you know Buddhism is desire is the root of, of suffering, and I sort of that's a, I guess this is sort of a corollary to that, if you could call it yes, a theorem. It it's, it's an actual proof of it, and uh, you know they're not the only ones like that too. I mean, you see that um, also among uh, you know some of the Indian reservations in New Mexico. Of course, then there's the casino uh, in the end, so that's a different Dip, type of thing. Yeah, but I think that's just their revenge on the white man. <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, and yeah, in some many cases, that's their their you know their only opportunity to maintain civilization and right, financial prospects. Right, because the prospects. land they got put on really there wasn't much else you could do with it, right? Yeah, yeah, it's had a very unfortunate end result to to, to that to that longstanding problem. I'm, I'm curious now. Some might make the argument that you know the, the reason that they're sort of an eco harmony, going back to the lack of, of waste that you you mentioned, not seeing on the streets and things like that, might just be to the fact that they have such a lack and that they're so impoverished. I mean, is it does it go beyond that? I mean, do you get that there's sort of an inherent cultural harmonization with the environment that's that's really rooted in the foundations of the culture? I would say that's exactly what it is, and it's been that way for millennia. And um, they don't feel they you know they don't feel impoverished why why have we but, lost that <laughs> yeah you know it's uh, it's something that um that we've evolved here in the west um i, I you know it's it's the technological advances the radical changes uh you know i was i was thinking about that the other night when i saw there will be blood you know with daniel day lewis it's a perfect example of the other 180 degrees of the Maya way of life. All right. Well, good. Well, we're going to take one more break here, and then we will be back, and we are talking on learning about eco-living and green living from Maya and other cultures. My guest is Dr. Eric Gibson, and his book is Nine Lords of the Night. You can find that online. It's also available. Is, am I correct? It's available as an ebook as well, Eric? Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's available in Kindle. 
and the Kindle uh, book format on Amazon.com as well. Okay, and that's NineLords.com, and we'll be right back on Green Talk Radio. Thanks, everyone. Listen to Living Green, Effortless Ecology for Everyday People, a weekly online audio program featuring champions of sustainable living at personallifemedia.com. Hey everyone, we're back on Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly. Today we're talking about learning about eco-living from Maya civilization and other cultures and anthropology and archaeology as it relates to green living. My guest talking to me about that is Dr. Eric Gibson. He's an author, archaeologist. I'm having a hard time with that one. I want to, I'm going to mix them together. Anthropologist. <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, he is an archaeologist and anthropologist who holds a PhD in anthropology from Harvard. And he has a book out, which is called Nine Lords of the Night. And it is actually a fictional work, but it, uh, it's got, I, I kind of think of it as, uh, it's kind of like for anthropology, what, um, uh, the Da Vinci Code, uh, uh did for, uh, uh, art curators and, uh, and, uh, code junkies, as it were, code crackers. We were talking before the break about, um, a lot of things actually, but we were talking about sort of examples in, in, um, uh, Mayan civilization uh, that really relate to eco living and, and simple living and, and sort of the roots of unhappiness in uh, modern consumerism and things like that. I wanted to switch gears a, a little bit uh, in this segment and talk about, you know, I think one often gets the impression from pop culture and from the media sometimes that, that ancient civilizations and, and uh, you know, people that are uh, really native cultures uh, throughout history, or at least the large majority of them, have lived in complete harmony with nature in their immediate environment. And I, I've often questioned whether that was really the case. Do you, do you have any examples of prehistoric cultures that were perhaps out of balance with their environment, as, as we've become in so many ways? Yes, I mean, well, there's there's lots of them. I mean, the, the Easter Island Polynesians, um, they they really went went a little bit nuts putting up the heads and you know, overreaching their resource base. But one of the first ones that I ever encountered where, you know, basically the prehistoric culture uh, made a mistake and was it was clearly a mistake they made with their environment is if you go out to the uh, end of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, Cape Flattery, there's an archaeological site there called Ozette, which is one of the best preserved archaeological sites in North America, and they thought sometimes people call it, you know, North America's Pompeii because things were, were covered up all at once and left in place and perfectly preserved under tons of mud. And the reason that this happened to this village is that they had a ridge line behind their village. They were right on the beach. And um, the ridge line, they cut every tree down to build the village plank houses and so forth. These are very sophisticated uh, Northwest Coast culture Indians who made a living whaling, you know, in long boats uh, with harpoons and so forth. And so they had a, a period of extensive rain, it's, it's hypothesized, and the evidence bears it out. And a giant land, a mudslide occurred because they had taken all the trees down. And... Um, that's a pretty good example of being out of balance, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a, yeah, an ancient, ancient clear-cutting and the, the results of it. Mm-hmm. 
but, but because of that, everything was left in place and it was a very rich archaeological site. But I, got, I would gather that the Makai Indians thought it was a rather unfortunate mm-hmm. incident. And now, do you, are there examples of, of complete cultural wipeout um, from, from living out of harmony? Or did, did anybody not did, – was it, is it that no culture sort of pushed it that far as, as we're thre- – or at least that most people believe in this culture that we are on the verge of possibly doing? Yeah, the, as I was saying, in Easter Island, the Polynesians there, um, they, they just about – uh, overtaxed the environment to, to the point where they were killing each other for pigs, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and was that complete elimination of their society as a result of that? Not completely, but certainly um, impacted it to the extent that, you know, they cut their population down by 90% in one generation. Hmm. So that's pretty close. Yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah, it's pretty, that's about as close as you but, can But you know get. what's interesting is uh, the Hawaiians, on the other hand, um, in the, where I worked in Kauai and uh, Maui. Uh, can you believe that? My first job out of, out of college after I graduated from the University of Oregon as an undergrad was I got to go to work in Hawaii. You could work in worse places. <laughs> I, I, I remember I was on uh, Tahiti, and I was on—I was—I think it was in Morea, and I saw that the University of some place in the United States had a had a scientific uh, outpost for college kids on Morea, and I thought, well, that now that's a great one to land. Yep. <laughs> those kids are psyched. Yeah, so I really did feel like when I, when I went out there that I hit the jackpot, and so I worked out there for about nine or ten months on a, what we used to call—I don't know—I if it, I guess it's called cultural resource management is the official term, but we used to just call it salvage archaeology. And that would be like when there was going to be a big um, a tourist, like one time we went to a place called Mala Wharf in Maui, and um, that was to uh, move a, a prehistoric Hawaiian cemetery um, out of the way so they could put up the, this great big resort complex, which is there now. Uh, although, you know, a lot of us had misgivings about you know, being involved in moving all these, all these burials. But... Uh, Getting back to what I was talking about in terms of the management of their ecological resources, the Hawaiians realized early on that they needed to have a way to give every lineage or every clan. They were very highly evolved chiefdom. They were probably like, if you're going to like rank rank uh, civilizations, the Polynesians in Hawaii were probably just on the cusp of being coming becoming as complicated as the Maya. In terms, they were about just on the edge of becoming a state. You know. A large state with you know lots of cities and so forth, but I think they were held back by the fact that they were on these islands and they, and they recognized that you needed to have a piece of the ecology. Every clan should have equal access, and so they created these districts. Like if you can picture Molokai, um, they that would start at the beach and they'd go up into the foothills and they'd go all the way up to the ridge line, and they, and so you'd have equal access to water. You have equal access to the best area to grow uh, breadfruit and to hunt in, you know, like game preserves. And, and, and they sliced the islands up in pie shapes like that with boundaries. And they were boundaries were even marked by, you know, stone walls. And uh, that was pretty sophisticated, and that worked very well for them until, you know, the Europeans showed up. They were able to sustain them. So they were very close to being the exact opposite of what happened in Easter Island. Mm, okay. Now, I know you've discussed in some of your writings how the destruction of my environments today today is, is damaging the field of ethnobotany. And I'm just curious if you'd like to elaborate a little bit about that here. Oh, yeah. First of all, I should put in a play for one of my colleagues when I was in school. Wade Davis does a, a series on uh, the Smithsonian Channel called The Light at the End of the World. 
and Wade, Wade and I were there at the same time uh, in grad school. And, um, you know, uh, ethnobotany as a field is, is a, it's a subfield of anthropology and it's a study of uh, like the medicinal uh, applications of native plants. And, um, I, I'll back up and explain, you know, what a shaman is, but you know, the common name for a shaman is a witch doctor, but this is the healer in any given tribe or, you know, culture. And these, these men and women, these shaman, they have intimate, uh, knowledge of uh, what the plants are and what their properties are and how they can be used to heal people and they use you know they use magic and medicine together um, you know through you know complex rituals but uh, one of the things I talk about is is that as the as the rainforest is you know it's, it's home approximately to a million or so species of complex plants that you know cover the earth you know and after 200 years of study ethnobotanists can name you about, oh, I don't know, 250,000 of them. So when you start uh, logging and displacing the native cultures and and logging and uh, destroying the forests, you're losing more than just the forest. You know, you're losing knowledge and you could be losing the potential of a, you know, a drug, a a pharmaceutical product that could be developed from their knowledge but they're not there anymore, and neither is the forest. And, and has it always typically been the role of the shamans in, in each of these cultures to, to understand, uh, to, to essentially be ethnobotanists within the tribe, mm-hmm. both from a healing uh, perspective, a more of a pragmatic, you know, physical healing as well as uh, on the spiritual side? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they do. And they, they do that more, too. I mean, they, you know, they're, they have magical powers, and they can... That's thought in some cultures that they can shape shift, or they'll have a uh, animal familiar that they can send to, uh, you know, uh, spy on your enemies or put a curse on you. Uh, you know, it, it goes beyond, you know, medicine, mm-hmm. but it, but it's all tied up in the same, you know, ideological bundle. Medicine, medicine, and magic—they're all part of the same thing. Right, and and, and that that extends to this day with the perceptions of some, of some Western doctors and that they that mm-hmm. they do magic, and, and some you know, quite frankly, they do things that are that are close to that and feel like that. So, um, but there's a rich anthropological uh, literature on uh, the the power of belief that's tied into studies of shamans in these cultures, and if you think about it, even a modern you know Western trained doctor will tell you. That if a patient has the will and really believes that they're going to, you know, defeat this affliction, that's fifty percent of it, right? Yeah, so psychosomatics essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, we, you know, we can dismiss them as you know medicine men, but they're you know it works, yeah. right? So if it's if it works, it it's good. <laughs> I think is the bottom line. Exactly. If somebody gets if you heal me, I believe what you do, and that's how they manage to sustain themselves. You know, with uh, the respect and the credibility they have within the local villages. Mm. Now, now, Eric, as an archaeologist, I'm curious how you feel about the way that your field is depicted in, for example, in the Indiana Jones movies. Well, you know, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was an archaeologist before I ever saw an Indiana Jones movie, so I can't claim to be of the generation that was influenced by the movies. But I, I do believe that that is a good thing because I think that uh, you know the the archaeologists today who are in their 30s and their 20s. Uh, many of them, you know, were uh, 
attracted by the romanticized version of archaeology that's presented in, in those movies. And, you know, I like them as entertainment just as much as anybody else does. But, you know, in my opinion, Indiana Jones is one of the worst archaeologists I've ever seen. <laughs> is, that, one of the worst is that right? Why, why is that? <laughs> because every site he works at, he gets destroyed. Okay. <laughs> I suppose that is violating the prime directive of an of a archaeologist. <laughs> Well, it's not the general idea, yeah. right? You know, it's to blow things up and have big things going down, things collapsing. You're supposed to just have the whole tomb collapse on you. It's really not recommended. True, point, point uh, taken. But uh, at the same time, like I say, I, uh, you know, I like I liked the movies, although I thought this last one was really pretty far out there because the crystal skulls have all been proven to be fakes. You know, not one of them is a credible archaeological artifact from any excavation with any known context. And it's very interesting that uh, crystal skulls have never been found by any bona fide archaeologist. They always seem to just creep into somebody's collection somewhere. And, uh, you know, the, I don't know if you've seen the, have you seen the I recent have, one? yes. I did. I wasn't even aware that the crystal skull thing was a reference to anything based in uh, fact or, or purported fact. So that's interesting to me. I thought that was just completely Oh, yeah, they've up. been around... Uh, they were, they've been well-known fakes since the mid-19th century. <laughs> but um, I just thought that, uh, you know, if you just took uh, Harrison Ford out, you know, and put in David Duchovny, you'd have the next X-Files movie because I didn't really see how it had a whole lot to do with archaeology. Well, now, as long as we're talking about that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put on, I'm going to put on, at the risk of putting on my tinfoil hat and asking a tinfoil hat question here. <laughs> uh, well, I don't have one, and I'm, I'm actually more on the other side of the fence, but but as an empirical computer scientist by nature. But I am curious because, you know, there, there are the references in the film, and I think there have been longstanding uh, beliefs by many people that some of the technology that various civilizations have had, example, the Egyptians with the building of the pyramids and the, and the Mayans and, um, you know, even in the ancient Toltecs, and, and it goes on and on, that they exceeded what would seem to be uh, even by, in the estimation of many anthropologists, their capacity to to learn and understand, and, and or or in case, some cases perform construction feats and things like that, is there any uh, saleable evidence whatsoever uh, th- that any culture in history, and I mean anything, anyone, anywhere, anytime, <laughs> uh, was ever visited or or given um, that? Well, let me put it this way: that scientists, anthropologists, cannot explain how that culture came upon that information. No. So it's all explainable. Unequivocally. You know what that, to me, it's the syndrome of saying all these, these poor barbaric cultures, you know, only, only uh, uh, sophisticated alien intelligence could have enabled them to build the Great Pyramids of Egypt or, you know, Palenque, uh, you know, the, the, the Great Pyramids down there in Chiapas that I write about in my book. Um, it's uh, if you study archaeology and you get into it, you know, to the level that you have to to hold graduate degrees in it, you can see that there's plenty of evidence over time for them to develop each one of the technologies that these, uh, shall we say, uh, authors that you know will do. Uh, you know, say it's the chariot of the gods like Von Daniken, who's like one I think one of the guys who started the whole thing off back in the, in the 70s. Uh, it, it, they just seem to not want to give the indigenous cultures credit to uh, figure things out. And, uh, you know, with a large enough workforce and an organized, you know, organized engineering crew, these pyramids can be built. And they were built quite often and, and quite well. And, 
it's it's you know it's just interesting to me that I mean I know I how can I put this I mean the, you know the truth is out there right I mean I think that it's quite possible that there are um, life forms on somewhere else in the universe besides here it seems kind of me be the, the height of uh, an almost uh, human self-centeredness to think that we're the only ones. But when it comes to archaeology, there's not a shred of evidence that any alien cultures did anything. It's, Fascinating. How, how's that? I mean, I, I yeah. think I could be more unequivocal than that. And so before we go, I'm just curious, Eric, did you have any final thoughts you wanted to share with our listening audience? Well, you know, if, Green and Simple Living, I, I mean, I think I was first uh, introduced to, to it when I lived in Oregon and I was an undergraduate at the University of Oregon because, you know, Eugene, Oregon is one of the most uh, green cities, I think, in the United States. But uh, by nature, when we archaeologists go into the field, we have to be respectful of the land and the landowners and and uh, we have to try to leave the smallest footprint possible. And so to that end, you know, we we we, we don't disturb our campsite too much. We've got a very organized way of taking care of waste. Uh, we, we have uh, you know, water pumps to uh, do solar heating through big oil drums to create the showers that we used to call Luke cold because they weren't even lukewarm. <laughs> but and, you know, that was one thing that I would say, if anybody ever asked me when I was out in the field what I missed the most about civilization, it was really being able just to walk into a, a, a place and get a hot shower. Right, I mean, really hot. I, you know, I find that mo- most people who travel in third world countries that always seems to be the, the common thing that they say. And I know that in my own experiences there, that was exactly how I felt as well. So it is the greatest of all modern luxuries, I suppose. And you know, and there's just something exciting when you're packing for the field and you're figuring out just what you need, right? And and you got like two, you know, duffel bags, and all your worldly goods are in those two duffel bags. And when you like go to the airport and you know, and you're getting ready. To, uh, to fly to a different country and go set up an, a, a camp in a remote area. Um, and, you, you know, you get into the Land Rover and you go off across the, the dirt roads, and it's euphoric. It's a euphoric feeling uh, because I think part of it is because you've left all your stuff behind, Sean. You know? I, I agree with you uh, 100%. I think that there is a certain purity of existence uh, and almost a, a return to the complete self that, that at least uh, anecdotally I've experienced in my own life in those few and fleeting moments in which I've had very little stuff. Uh, there is something very special about that. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think that's one of the great things about being on an archaeological project is because you, you gradually come to appreciate the few items you have and um, – you become you become more like the, the the people that you're working with. You know, it's the old going native routine, right? I mean, you live in hammocks, you got mosquito nets, you know, you've got uh, thatched huts. You live you live just like the Maya do, and um, you know, I, I gotta say, I, I look back on those times with just a uh, great deal of you know just affection, and and I miss them sometimes uh, because of you know it, it's it's a uh, it's just a great thing to do to immerse yourself into another way of life that's much more simple and, and less stressful, really, than what we have here on a daily basis. I, well, I really appreciate you being on the program today, and it has been a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed it, and I want to point out to people listening in today that, especially as it relates to the simple living concepts that were discussed in today's program, we have an entire section on the greenlivingideas.com website. 
that relates to simple living and concepts thereabout. Um, so we invite you to visit that section of the site. It's under the topics menu and the simple living submenu, and there's a number of different topics underneath there uh, under simple living. So uh, my guest again today has been Dr. Eric Gibson. He's an author, archaeologist, I'll get it right one of these days, an anthropologist <laughs> who holds a PhD in anthropology from Harvard University. And he ha- is the author of a book. It's a fictional book that makes anthropology cool. And it's a book called Nine Lords of the Night. And you can find that online at ninelords.com. I want to thank my guest again, Eric Gibson. And I also want to thank all of you for listening in today on Green Talk Radio from greenlivingideas.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks as always to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.